morning, Vero Christian Church, our in-person congregation here. Good to see all of you, and glad to have those who are live streaming with us as well. Uh, if you're watching live stream, we ask that you click like and share. We appreciate that very much. I just heard from some people last week, those who clicked like and share, they said they had the best week of their lives. And some who didn't, bad things happened. So I don't know if that's related or not, but please click like and share. Previously on Obey Everything, if you're new to us, I know we, we have some guests here with us this morning. We're in this sermon series on obeying the commands of Jesus as we're going through the book of Matthew, and we've really been in the Sermon on the Mount for quite some time. And last week, now today's kind of a two-parter within the overarching series. Last week we were talking about Jesus' command in Matthew chapter 7 to enter through the narrow gate. And we just talked about in what sense is the gate narrow. And really, it's in the sense that it's the only gate. There are no other gates. Harvin Chris, you got, you got through here? I didn't see you come in. I was going to shake your hands. My good friends from Virginia, been loving them, knowing them for a long time. Glad you made it. So where was I? You interrupted me there. Uh, it's the gate is narrow in the sense there are no other gates. Jesus is the second Adam. He's the new Noah. He's the seed of Abraham. He's the prophet like unto Moses. He's the Davidic king, and he's the son of God. And he said in John chapter 10, I'm the gate. So there are no other gates. So that was, that was last week. Now today, we're going to take the rest of that command. Let's get it before us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 14. The road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. So the gate's narrow, but the road is difficult. So that's the big takeaway from the message the road to life is often difficult. We're going to drill down and talk about how and in what ways it's difficult, but we're going to say four things here, and the first thing that I want to say is who. We're going to do a who, how, why, and what. Who is the road difficult for? Or probably the proper grammar is, for whom is the road difficult? And the answer to that is, for everybody who's on the road. It's difficult for everybody who's on the road to life. And I hope in a way that that's encouraging to you. It's encouraging to me to know that it's not just me. If someone was to say to me, you know, for me, following Jesus and being a disciple and getting on the road to life, not that hard, pretty easy, not really that hard, that's not very encouraging to me. In a way, it's discouraging because I start to think, well, it's hard for me. Does that mean I'm on the, the wrong road? Does that mean I'm doing it wrong somehow? No, Jesus said the road to life is hard. It's difficult. The word that he uses there, did a little word study on for difficult. It's philbo, T-H-I-L-B-O. If you transliterated the Greek, philbo, it's used four times in the New Testament. Right here, translated difficult or hard in the other three places. It's translated either hard or difficult or distressing or crushing. So if your life ever seems hard, difficult, stressful, or even crushing, you're not alone. You're in good company. Not talking just about me, but talking about Jesus and everybody else who is on that road. So you have permission to have a bad day. Had a bad day and throw one down, sing a sad song just to turn it around. Now, in our church, you know, Dave and Avon Putter, and they have a daughter, Hannah, who's married to John, Hannah and John Malone, and they train missionaries. They live in New York City, not native New Yorkers, but they live in New York City four or five years now training missionaries to go to Arab-speaking countries. So that's their ministry. 
And I'm on their email list. I get their email updates, and they sent one last week. And it was, it was right in line of what I'm talking about, so I asked permission to share some of it. And I got, so I have permission to share this. I'm going to share a little bit from their last email update because they were talking about how hard it's been lately. Now, we put the two pictures up there, John and Hannah. It's not their best pictures, but I call them their zombie pictures. And uh, that's what they send in the email, and they're kind of giving the backstory here. So let me just read a little bit. Hang with me here as I read from their email. Hannah writes, The amount of stress and pressure we were experiencing was enormous. We were frequently at the end of our rope, in tears, angry, near burnout. Fast forward to the night of those two pictures. It was a particularly hellish day where we felt exhausted, overwhelmed, like there weren't enough hours or enough of us to go around. I was bathing the kids, and I sat on the toilet in a trance and started to cry as these words crossed my mind. I can't do it. I think I'm done, and I want to quit. Little did I know that John was having the exact same experience across the house. And when the kids were down, we both shared how exhausted and, we're, we're, and how we wondered how we could go on without literally breaking. We sobbed, talked, processed, and asked hard questions. We always thought that if we just prepared enough and trained and were resilient, we wouldn't want to quit. We thought that the difference between the people who stay and those who go home is that one soars over the hard times and the others just can't manage. We now know that every single missionary, and I would substitute or add the word here to missionary, Christian. All Christians are missionaries in a sense, but... We now know that every single Christian goes through the ringer and will want to throw in the towel at one time or another. This was a monumental moment for us. Not only did it give us permission to have those days where you want nothing more than to throw in the towel, but it gave us permission to have those moments without feeling like it must mean we aren't cut out for this. It's God's grace alone that keeps us here and keeps us sane. Well, thank you, John and Hannah, for being so transparent and honest with us. I think a lot of us could relate to that. Think of this, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, 13 long chapters written to Jews who had become Christians, and then they found the road so hard and difficult, they were contemplating abandoning Christ and returning to simple Judaism. And so the Hebrew author writes to them, basically the theme of the message is, don't quit. Don't give up. Don't quit on Christ. He's worth it, and it'll be worth it. So, just saying right there, we're, we're going to talk about how and why, but just right there, it's hard for all of us. You're not alone. All right, number two, how is the road to life difficult? Second question of the four here, how is the road to life difficult? Well, first, let me clarify. Well, what would we talk about with the road to life? If I understand what the Bible is teaching here, the road to life is a lifestyle. Jesus is talking about a lifestyle. Keeping things in context, we're at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about, here's what a kingdom man is, here's what a kingdom woman is. This is to be our attitudes and our character and our thoughts and our actions. Here's our lifestyle. So I think that's the road to life is a certain way to live. And it's a hard way to live in, in several ways. We could say a lot of things about that. I'll just say three. I, I call them my three counters. The road to life is difficult, first of all, because it's counterintuitive. 
You know, in a way, at first blush, some of the things Jesus taught, they don't seem to make sense. You take the first eight statements in the Sermon on the Mount, known as the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice and be glad. What? That sounds a little counterintuitive. And you get further into the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus says, turn the other cheek. And when somebody persecutes you or does evil towards you, you pray for them, do good to them. He says, give away some of your money fast. These are things that are counterintuitive. That makes it a little bit challenging. Also, here's my second counter. It's counter-carnal. Counter-carnal. Now, that's not a real word. I made that word up. Kind of proud of that. But the word carnal comes from the Latin for flesh. Counter-flesh. Now, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, Paul writes, of course, that we have, there's two aspects to our nature, spiritual side, fleshly side. And he said, our spirit is at war with our flesh. He says that, at war. Because the things our flesh wants to do, that's not what our spirit wants us to do. And the things our spirit wants to do, that's not what our flesh wants to do. So there's this internal conflict. So whereas our spirit says, Jesus says, be be meek, mourn, turn the other cheek, our flesh wants to reach out and slap our enemy upside the head. We want to crush our enemies. We don't want to do good to our enemies. We don't want to give our money away. We want to hold on to that money. We need that money. We don't want to fast. We want to eat. We don't want to pray. Does praying do any good? You know, that's our flesh. So it's a lifestyle that's challenging and difficult, among other reasons, because it's counter-carnal. My third counter is counter-cultural. How many find the road to life? Few are those who find it. By definition, you're Christian, we're Christians, we're disciples. By definition, we're in the minority. And our culture, because you know this if you're paying attention, and you are, that our particular culture, American culture, has been drifting, hasn't it? The the sociologists tell us we're in a post-Christian America. So there may have been a a day and time in America where if you're a church-going Christian, then you'd have the approbation of culture and society, and people will pat you on the back. Not necessarily anymore. We kind of lose a peer group in a sense. We, we lose the praise of men a lot of times just by being a Christian these days. Johnette Binkovic has written of the five stages of religious persecution. Let me run through these real quick. See if you recognize any of these reflected in our culture. Number one is stereotyping. Stereotyping the targeted group. Stereotyping. Think Ned Flanders on The Simpsons. Think the average Christian as is portrayed in Hollywood, watching a TV series or a movie or maybe even in literature, and you got a Christian character. The Christian character is going to be a fool, a buffoon, a hypocrite, or the evil, the evil villain. Secondly, vilifying. Vilifying the targeted group for alleged crimes or misconduct. This has the effect of creating a self-righteous indignation toward believers and of making anti-Christian attitudes a permissible bigotry. Third stage, marginalizing. Marginalizing to target a group's role in society. In this stage, it becomes increasingly unacceptable and intolerable that anyone should mention God, pray publicly, 
or in any way bring his or her Christian faith to bear on matters of public policy. Fourth stage, criminalizing. Criminalizing the targeted group or its works. For instance, casinos, bars, protests, open for business. Church, closed for business. And fifthly, final stage, persecuting the targeted group outright. So one of my mentors said, eventually, every government gets around to persecuting the church. So we have to decide sometimes as Christians, sometimes, maybe frequently, are we living for the praise of God or are we going to live for the praise of men? In his gospel, John writes about those who wanted to follow Christ but were afraid to do so. John chapter 12, verse 42, he says, at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear they'd be put out of the synagogue, for they love praise from men more than praise from God. All right, that's that countercultural difficulty on the road to life. So, and there are other reasons we could go into, but at least those three categories of reasons. My third question here as we talk about the road to life is why? Why would anybody get on the road to life? <laughs> if it's that hard and that challenging, why? Why anybody get on that road? Well, because it's the road to life. This is a road that has a destination, and that destination is life. Last week when we were talking about the gate, we said how Jesus said, I am the gate. In John chapter 10, verse 9, I'm the gate. Those who come to me, they will find salvation. But it goes on to say in the very next verse, John 10, 10, my purpose then is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Now, we do have heaven to look forward to. That's going to be rich and satisfying. That's our ultimate destination. No, no doubt about that. And that's important. Looking forward to heaven. That helps us endure a lot of things. But that's not what he's really saying right here. Jesus says, I want to give them a rich and satisfying life. He's talking about right now. Our life right now. Jesus is offering us a life that is rich and satisfying. Where There are different levels or ways in which a life can be rich and can satisfy. I mean, we think of the material level, there's that. But there's also an internal level and a spiritual level where that is true. Brennan Manning's great author, uh, he wrote Ragamuffin Gospel. I recommend that book. He also wrote this book, Posers, Fakers, and Wannabes. Great book. And in this book, he contrasts uh, two men. One is Carlton, one is Moe. Carlton is a world-class athlete. He's an eight-time Olympic gold medalist. He's in his late 20s. Handsome, perfectly sculpted body, charismatic personality. And he, he tours the country and he gives talks and speeches and, and people follow him and draws crowds wherever he goes. Moe is a part of his entourage. He's a bit more frumpy. He's older, he's balding, she's pot-bellied, glass eye. Nothing physically attracted to him, and he's the gopher for Carlton. Whatever Carlton needs, you know, Mo, that's his job to go get it. Bottle of water, whatever it is. And Mo's very comfortable in the role of the servant. He feels that's what Jesus has called him to. So Carlton is given this uh, speech at the annual fundraiser, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Gives a fantastic speech, has him in tears. He's now the palm of his hand. And he's giving glory to God. But this is where Brennan Manning picks up the narrative. Let me read this for you. 
But look behind his glossy delivery, and Carlton's vacant stare reveals that his words do not inhabit his soul. Stardom has chipped away at his presence with Jesus. Real intimacy with God is just a memory. The Spirit's whispering has been drowned out by deafening applause. Back at the Red Roof Inn, Mo sits down to a frozen dinner at the little round table in his room. He was not invited to the banquet at the Ritz-Carlton because, frankly, Mo doesn't fit in. Who could even consider inviting this greasy-haired, pot-bellied, glass-eyed hireling to pull up a chair with the likes of Bruce Willis, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and former President Bush? Mo closes his eyes. The love of Jesus surges within him. His eyes fill with tears. He whispers, thank you, Jesus, as he peels the plastic top off his microwave lasagna. He flips to Psalm 23 in his Bible and he reads, God, my shepherd, I don't need a thing. You have laid me down in lush meadows. You find me quiet pools to drink in. The picture that Brennan Manning is trying to draw, the truth he's trying to illustrate, there's more than one way to find the rich and satisfying life. The elite and the glitterati and the celebrity and the powerful. In our world, how often is it that they go home, lay down in their bed, and having accomplished all those goals, wonder to themselves, is this all that there is? Okay, so why would anybody get on that road? Because it has a destination. That road is life. Not only eternal life in heaven, but it's rich and satisfying life right here, right now. And my final question, fourth question here as we're approaching this, this road to life is the question, what? What helps has God given us on the road to life? And has he just said, did Jesus just say, hey, the road to life is hard. Suck it up. That's the way it is. No, he's given us some helps. Now, years ago, Back when I wore a younger man's clothes, about 20 years ago in Orlando, I ran a race called the Muddy Buddy. Muddy Buddy in Orlando. And it's, kind of, it's a seven-mile sort of obstacle course. There are five challenges. And you think cargo nets and climbing walls, balance beams, challenges. And you run it in teams of two. And you, one, of your, one partner starts off on the bicycle. The other one it starts off on foot. And off you go. And then you leapfrog each other. As, at each obstacle, you switch off the bike and on foot. And the last one is this, this big mud pit that you have to crawl through at the very end. And I, so I didn't come in last. And you see there's an older guy back there behind me. So at least I didn't come in last place. But it was difficult in its way. But there were three things that held me out there. Number one. I had a map. I knew everything that was coming on the course. It was all laid out. You know, we, we, could, we could train and prepare for that. Number two, I had a friend, a buddy. Rodney Palmer was my buddy, good old friend from Orlando, and uh, where he was weak, I'm strong. Where I'm weak, he's strong, and we encourage each other. And thirdly, there was this great, big crowd watching us and cheering us on all the way. And people who finished the race would go get in the crowd, and they would cheer on the ones who were finishing. Thinking about that as I'm thinking how God helps us on the road to life. Number one, we kind of get a map. We get our road map from Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus himself. No, he's the one, he's blazed the trail, so to speak. And we trust him. We have confidence in him when he says, I'm going to give you a rich and satisfying life. Somebody once said, 
If you are the smartest person in the room, you're probably in the wrong room. And one thing I've learned is I don't have to be the smartest person in the room, but I do want to be smart enough to be able to recognize who the smartest person in the room is. That's the one I want to talk to, get some coaching from, and get some instruction. And we all understand we're Christians. The smartest person in every room at any time is Jesus. He's not only the Son of God. He's not only the Lord and our Savior. He's brilliant. He's smart. He's the author of life. And when he says, you live like this, take the Beatitudes, turning the other cheek, fasting, giving away money, whatever it is, it seems counterintuitive. When he says, you live like this, if we trust him, we're going to have that kind of life. Trust is a synonym for faith. I believe this is one of the reasons why faith is so valuable to God. What does he want from us? Faith. Why? Because it was a lack of trust and faith and confidence in God that got Adam and Eve into trouble in the first place. And that's gotten us into our trouble. Where Adam and Eve didn't trust God. They didn't believe Him when He said, eat all these other trees and don't eat that tree. They said, no, you're holding something back from us. They didn't trust Him. And so to reverse all of that, we have to express confidence, faith, and trust in Jesus and live that way. On the counter flesh challenge, the counter carnal God has given us a buddy, a friend, a helper called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives within us. Here's His primary role in ministry in our lives. He is an internal source of power to help us overcome our fleshly nature. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 12. He says, You have no obligation to do what your flesh urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. And so through the spiritual disciplines, we are tapping into this resource, this internal power of the Holy Spirit. Countercultural. We lose a peer group in a way when we follow Jesus, but we gain a peer group too. And God's given us the church. You are not alone on the road to life. I'm on that road with you. I'm not alone on the road to life. You are on the road with me. I am your church. You are my church. That's the cheering crowd. It means so much. Think about, thinking about Elijah, this great prophet in the Old Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter, or 1 Kings rather, chapter 19. He's in the Old Testament. He's had this long but difficult ministry. And he finally gets to the point, he's tired. He's worn out. He's like John and Hannah. He's at the end of his rope and he's ready to quit. In fact, he says to God, I just want to die. I want to die. He said, These people have killed all your other prophets, and now they're trying to kill me too. Everybody's out to get me. I'm the last one. I'm the only one left. And he sat down and wanted to die, and God did several things to encourage him. Number one, he fed him. Number two, he let him rest. Number three, he took him out into nature. Number four, let him hear the voice of God. Number five, gave him a friend and a partner. But the one I want to focus on right here is he informed Elijah. He said, let me just make you aware of something. You're not alone. You're not the last one. There are 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed their knee in idolatry. You're not alone. And you're not alone. God has given us that peer group, the church. So as we finish, let me go back to the the Muddy Buddy. One, One last thing I learned on the Muddy Buddy. A road can be difficult. It can be challenging. There can be obstacles. You can get all messed up and muddy on this road. But at the end... Number one, it's all worthwhile, and even in the process, it can 
be fun. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, everybody in here has had those kind of days where they just want to quit, or we just want to quit. We've had bad days, and it's hard. In fact, some may be having a day like that today, or maybe have had a week like that this week. We can all kind of relate to that. And I think Jesus probably had a number of difficult days as well. We thank you for reminding us of this truth today, that we're on the road to life, and it's all going to be worth it, and it's worth it right now, and that you've helped us with your Holy Spirit, with Jesus, and with the church. And when we recommit ourselves and renew ourselves to that road. In Jesus' name, amen.